Look, I think we'll start. Um, for those who've just joined us, I'm in, in a phone booth in the lounge at JFK Airport in New York. <laughs> Ian's in his home in England as per normal. We've got no guest on tonight because we're, it was just a little bit hard to organise. Ian had been away, I've been away. Um, Bruce Williams might be joining us in about 10 minutes to make some comments, but I've been at the IFAB conference. The IFAB conference is the International Foot and Ankle Biomechanics Group. Um, and they have a conference every two years. So it's, it was in, obviously in New York um, the last three days. So what we're going to do is just comment, discuss um, some of the, the stuff that I, I thought was interesting. And if anyone's got a question on some of the stuff, I'll do the, my best to answer it. Um, if Bruce makes it on, we'll ask him what his highlights were. But I, I think for the whole, let, let me just, Share, let me share my desktop, might be easier. Show a few things. So this this was the conference, the International Foot and Ankle Biomechanics meeting um, at the Wyndham, New Yorker, which was an awesome hotel. But two things, sorry, the main thing that struck me about the whole conference was the extraordinary con continued disconnect between the researchers and clin clinicians. Um, I think we had a couple of papers, one, but both very good, um, but one in particular on the subtalar joint axis. Uh, neither of the authors had heard of um, what we generally do clinically with the subtalar joint axis, which I think is extraordinary, which um, because they didn't incorporate that into their research, it makes their work somewhat irrelevant to the clinical world and, and I think the whole purpose of doing that research was to make it relevant to the clinical world. So that was what I yeah, found really quite interesting that, that, that people are working on these areas with absolutely no comprehension of what we do in clinical practice and obviously I'm talking about the work that Kevin Kirby's done and that they were totally unfamiliar with it. And, Where were they from? Where were they from Craig? Um, in, in US but they're were, they were in biomechanical engineering departments, biomechanists Okay. Um, you know, but this is not the first, I think the frustrating thing for me at these sorts of meetings, this is not the first time it's happened. Mm. Um, the, the, like this meeting when it was in Washington and Seattle quite a few years ago, the same thing came up. And Kevin Kirby was at that meeting and, and certainly raised it and, and they, these researchers generally expressed interest, but it never seems to, I don't know, the, the problem still exists, but it makes their work like it may well be what we're doing clinically can be debunked by they, their work if they take it into account, which means we have to shift or, or it may not be. But until they start incorporating, it's not really going to make a great deal of difference. And the other disconnect, the, the, the second one, that was the first one. The, the other one was quite obviously being a foot and ankle biomechanics conference. There were several studies using photophotics. Um, a couple in particular used custom made photophotics, but one in particular everyone was posted to four degrees. They were their custom-made photophotics because <laughs> that was the lab default. Well, me pies. You know, the argument, like um, everyone got 3.2 millimeter thick polypropylene. I mean, clinically, I use thicker polypropylene for heavier people, thinner for lighter people. You, you know, so they were using the lab default as their custom-made orthotic and they got a particular outcome. Um, if they'd made a true custom device, they may or may not have got a different outcome. I mean, it's highly likely they would have got the same outcome, but until these studies do what is done in clinical practice, it's not going to have a lot of relevance. So, um, I mean, that that was the sole, as you as you well know, that was the sole 
reason that, that Simon and I wrote that editorial for the BJSM, not to sort of um, point fingers or wind anyone up or suggest that, that, that we have answers, but just to, just to make people aware that these are the limitations of such research and they exist. And that's like, we need to consider the conclusions made in the context of those limitations rather than getting carried away. Yeah, but that's that's that systematic review two weeks ago in the British Journal of Sports Medicine that went viral on social media and is still going viral Mm. is based on that issue of a lot of the studies just didn't use athletics the way that most people use them clinically and reaches a conclusion. So I'm I know I've been promising for two weeks to write a blog post on that and I will get to it. (laughs) Um, I'm only back for nine days, then I'm off again. So. It, it, it makes life, um, but but they were my two big issues about overall the conference that disconnect between the, 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 the biomechanical research going on and how we tend to apply it in clinic. And to me, that while there were some really good research, lots of really good snippets. I mean, even that the one on the subtalar joint axis I was talking about was a really good study and could easily be explained by the work we do clinically with the subtalar joint axis. Um, the fact that the researcher wasn't aware of that is what obviously is, is, is the big issue. So where I thought we would go from here is I'm just going to, on Tarachi Arena, I, I posted comments on, on the studies that I found most interesting. So what I'll do is we'll go through those. And if anyone's got a comment um, or a question about those, I'll do my best to answer it. So let me just go back to sharing my screen because this was a, Oops, I've lost the whole thing. So those have just joined us. Um, no jokes about my shiny head. I'm in a phone booth <laughs> at JFK in the <clears throat> club. So um, let me just share my screen. So look, what I did in this thread here, I was, I was just posting live updates from IFAB, and I, I often do that at conferences I go at, go to. Um, the whole first session was on total, total ankle arthroplasty. So I slept in and went to the gym. Um, but the one, probably the one that caught my eye, and this this was one here from France, the French podiatrist with a PhD, um, plantar system dysproprioception, clinical evaluation of participation. And so they had this, this is the abstract of the oral presentation, and I have got to admit, I desperately, desperately wanted to understand it, but I got lost really early the same group also had two posters and these are the abstracts from those posters um i actually had my video camera with me here and i wanted to would have loved to have interviewed these authors but i think there i think a lot of what they're saying it gets lost in the translation but they are talking about photothoses reduce repercussions of ns4 noxious stimulus and i obviously had to google what is that and unfortunately, all I could find on that was their work. So, but if, if you, in the second abstract was foot function and sensory motor orthoses of NS4 noxious stimulus, which was sort of, you know, what is this? And I, I'm just trying to find the right sentence. Sorry, I, I should have prepared a wee bit better. It took me longer to get through the x-rays here at the airport. Um, yeah, like, in fact, NS4 is a specific heterotrophic nociceptive stimulus that produces pain when all four criteria are met. So what say say that again, it suggests... It suggests... NS4 it, is a specific... Actually, let me 
Oh yeah, can make it bigger. So yeah, it's this here. NS4 is a specific hetero, hetero, heterotrophic nociceptive stimulus that produces pain. I mean, I'm I'm no pain expert. I'll yeah. say that right now. I, but as you well know, I'm. It's a real hobby of mine to to understand better at this time and mm. and straight away that for me doesn't feel right because nothing produces pain. Well, that, yeah, that's that's yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. But this yeah. NS4 gets mentioned a lot. Um, Never heard of it. Need to... So if you look here, this is the discussion. The, the use of sensory orthotics induced a new reparation of the plantar sensory field information. So hang on, hang on. Let's go down to, yeah, modulation here. The, this is the conclusion. Modulation of pain. of any, oh, Here's Bruce. Hey, Bruce, we're just discussing this uh, stuff that neither you or I could understand. Oops, we can't hear you, Bruce. Can you... Uh, yeah, how about now? Yeah, Bruce's, yeah. so I, I, we'll come back to you in a minute, Bruce. We're, Hi, just, Bruce. we're, we're just talking about this, uh, those French papers that, oh, we, yeah. we both, <laughs> yeah. that we both, but this, you know, the modulation of the pain of NS4 heterotrophic nociceptive stimuli, pain perception, and somathesia discrimination by sensorimotor orthoses influence. So the key key conclusion was. Sensory and motor orthoses influence the repercussion of NS4 in the sensory integration. Now, I, I have had to Google pretty much every word in that sentence. And, and, <laughs> I'm still not, and I wasn't the only one using Google during the LEC presentation either. Um, but it, it's, it's like, you know, I'm not trying to criticize them or dismiss them. I, I desperately want to understand this. So it was a little bit of a, um, yeah, a little bit of a struggle, but still interesting. And, and, um, yeah, you know, if people want to have a look at that that comment I made on Podiatry Arena, and you can follow more about it there. So, so you got I, back home to Chicago, Bruce? <laughs> I, I did. I just want to say on those papers that, um, that you should have just titled that segment "Lost in Translation" because that guy's French accent was exceedingly difficult to understand as well. I think you said the same thing. Besides the rest of his papers, but yes, I made it home just fine. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm in a phone booth. <laughs> I see that. <laughs> Yeah, like, the problem is the light. There's only got one light in here. Um, now, the, when I started, Bruce, I just talked about two things that jumped out at me. So I'll get you to comment on those. The two things were, well, what they were both to do with that disconnect between um, the biomechanics research and clinical practice. And while there were some real awesome tidbits and bits of research that, and obviously the specific two specific examples I used was the subtargon axis one, not incorporating yep. the stuff we might do with the axis clinically even though that could be used to debunk it which means we've got to change and the other one was you know the the, the use of foot orthoses but they're all post four degrees um, right so wondering what the highlights for you were <laughs> um you know i mean uh i tweeted out a few things on a few different papers I, today i talked about the uh one of the last ones where the guy did the ultrasound to um that different type of ultrasound where he was able to differentiate the makeup of the Achilles and how it was definitely distinct between uh, forefoot runners and heel or, or foot uh, forefoot strike runners and uh, heel strike runners. Yeah, and yeah, I, I thought I thought that was interesting. You know, I thought that that was kind of cool. And I made the comment to you that, and maybe you had said this before, and that's how I came up with it. I, I don't know. I mean, my my feelings kind of been from looking at all this forefoot stuff is it what they've kind of switched to lately is now that there is 
some of the distinctions between those who truly do forefoot run and have always forefoot run is that there are make their makeup is different than the rest of the people in this one. This this paper really hit home with that to me. And I, as I said to you um, before I left on on uh, yesterday, I you know I said you know I think these it's potential that these people are um, you know they're toe walkers that never aged out. In other words, they never stopped toe walking. Now, granted, he said in his paper, and I know most others do as well, that they can get their heels to the ground. But then you, you and I have both said it in the past. They, but when they walk, they still have a bouncy type gait. And when they run, you know, maybe they touch down very, very lightly at the heel, you know, but it's, it's a secondary heel contact. It's not the primary. The primary contact, uh, which we would consider to be heel contact, is not as forefoot contact for them then they may get that reverse motion that I would see on pressure mapping that would indicate that the heel has slightly started to load or even the midfoot portion. And then they move back into, into a full propulsion once they're through whatever their mid stance is. Um, so, you know, I think that there's just, they're just made up differently. I think it's good that they're talking, that, that researchers are talking about this because then I think it, it helps others to understand why those who aren't that way get injured when they go to run that way. And then maybe people even more will start to back off and realize this isn't necessarily good for everyone because they don't all have the structural um, makeup as far as the bones and, uh, uh, and the structure of the bones are concerned, but also even the tendons. So that, that was one of the primary ones. Uh, yeah, so that, yeah. Um, just why we're on that. Um, I just saw that was Scott Waring, wasn't yeah, he? Scott's uh, he, Scott's paper here. He, 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 um, he talked uh, about that a little bit when he came over to the UK. He was in Liverpool in November for our annual conference. And actually, it was one of my favourite talks of the entire conference. I think he's an incredibly uh, funny, charming presenter as well, which always yeah. is, is, is helpful. But um, that, was, that was several people I spoke to. That was their best lecture of the, of the entire conference in November as well. Yeah. No. yeah. It was, it was very, very good. I mean, he even, he even showed that the kinematics weren't that different from walking and running. Uh, well, from the walking anyway, from the foot striker, the, the four foot strikers, to the heel strikers, but it was the tendon, the ultrasound tendon makeup that made the difference. So yeah. I'm like, it's well, just what, so while we're on the topic of foot strike patterns. Let me just share this. I, I, this was a, a um, let me just make it bigger so people can see it. Whoops. Um, oh, yeah, this was this paper from Aaron Miller, the accuracy of self-reported foot strike pattern in runners. And as the comment I made, I think we could guess what the study found before we even hear her presentation. So I, I thought, oh, well, I, I know what she's going to say. But I was, I was actually a little bit surprised that this is one of the better studies in that I think generally half of, in a couple of other studies, up to half of runners self-identify their foot strike pattern wrong. But it was a lot less in her study. Um, yeah, 77% could correctly describe their foot strike pattern. So that's uh, like a, th a third of runners got it wrong. In other studies, that's up to a half. So, you know, the take-home message there is if a runner says they're a four-foot striker, um, according to her, there's a 30% chance they're wrong. And according to other studies, there's a 50% chance they're wrong. But it's typically those that get it wrong are those who are rear foot strikers and they're not, you know, when they're, they're tested properly. So it's still pretty high. So I had, I had to have a little um, giggle at that one. Well, she was one of the West Point 
researchers, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Well, she then she did at the end of the thing. She said, "Well, it's you know not necessarily that everybody else gets it wrong. It's just that West Point cadets obviously are smarter and better because they got it all right." I've got to give her credit for that. I thought that was kind of fun. <laughs> That's a nice paper, though, because, you know, we talk about the previous paper that said uh, runners aren't great at identifying their foot strike. And we know we've also got papers that that's, when your runners are asked, are you a pronator or a supernator, that lovely terminology, that they're terribly poor, at, uh, although they think, they think they're better at knowing what they are than they actually are. So it's just a lovely paper to add to that bundle, that pile, um, build the picture of, of this this sort of, um, I don't know. I don't know why runners get it so wrong. Has there ever been any suggestions as to why? Oh, I think it, it's. It, I know Blaise Debar talks about that proprioceptive heel strike. So it's that heel strike that lightly touches the ground. So yeah, is that a heel striker or not? So I think you know, a heavy heel striker probably knows that a light heel striker might not know they're a heel striker, or might assume they're more a midfoot forefoot. But when you put them on the force plate, they, the heel hits the ground. I, mean, I think, like, I think with, any me- with, with any measure at the extremes, yeah. it's a bit like the foot, post- the foot posture index, we'll all spot and agree on a plus 12 and a minus 12. So when you get into that bunch in the middle, that everything's going to get very subjective. It's probably the same with foot striking on it. Um, yeah. I think I would agree, because I think I'll, when I've been to places, you know, when, when that's even been discussed, they'll go out on runs, and then people will be discussing it when they're running, and it's just like, you know, you listen quietly, and you're like, <laughs> Yeah, you yeah, know, you don't know what you're talking about. So quit telling your friend that they're, that they're a, a four foot striker because that's just plain wrong. <laughs> so you know, it's that's that's runners. I mean, and, and anybody else, but you know, it's just yeah. one of those things. So let, let me put one up for you, Ian. Okay. Foot structure and function in multiple sclerosis. The more. Oh yeah, my more most, <laughs> multiple sclerosis and more overpronated. So, but they were the researchers' words, not my words that I wrote there. <laughs> I, I believe you. I believe you. Was that with the foot posture index? She's using 3D kinematics. Um, it was quite, so a, how, quite a detailed look. At, at so, <clears throat> where, did, where, where did she, she obviously she categorised them as pronated or overpronated? Yeah, where, yeah, where, just, how, where did I, she draw the line in the sand? How I, did she decide? I, I have to go and check that, but I think it was quite arbitrary. So, yeah. actually, here's, here's another interesting. Is. Actually, this one here was a bit interesting too because this got me thinking. I mean, this was a good study, but they tried to look at static foot posture to predict midfoot mechanics. So, one of the one of the parameters they looked at was static arch height. Okay, then they had them hanging from the roof uh, with their feet forty centimeters off the ground and then all the markers on the foot and dropped onto the force plate to see what happened dynamically. And from what I recall, that there, there were correlations, but they weren't that strong, but they were much, much stronger for the pest planus group and the pest cavus group. So in the low arch and the high arch group, static arch height was more predictive of what the foot did dynamically. But... And that comes back to that point I raised at the start about that disconnect between researchers and clinicians of what value is that to us in that a pest planus, why they've got a pest planus, tight calf muscles, weak post tib muscle or an osseous forefoot varus. Now I'd expect say the arch height, the static arch height of all those three to perhaps function differently dynamically. And I think that's another one of those examples why this was a really good study 
it's another of that disconnect between you know what we're doing and clinically to you know we need those three foot types differentiated to help validate what we do rather than this pest plainest pest cavus sort of um, classification. I don't know how you feel about that, Bruce. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I know there was one other one yesterday where they did the drop test as well. And I think that was the one where they did that with the, the cheerleaders versus the gymnasts versus the controls. And, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things I noted is one of those, I don't know if it was a cheerleader. I assume it was a cheerleader and not a gymnast dropped down. She immediately had a bit of knee valgus. I mean, it wasn't extreme, but she had a knee valgus when she did it uh, unilaterally. And she had a little bit of knee, just a slight amount of knee valgus that was, you could see visually when she did it um, bilaterally. But to me, if they're only tracking the foot and the ankle and they're not looking at the knee, how much of these things are being, you know, just to their point on how much, well, maybe not their point. Cause I mean, these are more pure PhD researchers, not necessarily PT or physio researchers. Yeah. PT and physio researchers are obviously going to go, well, we're not going to worry about the feet, the foot. We're going to see where that pronation is. And aha, it's purely caused by the, the hip. Whereas, you know, if it were from our end, we would probably say, yeah, well, not so much because we noticed a lot of it in there. They kind of get that, got to get that whole gamut. So I don't, I don't know about that, but you know, I just, the biggest issue I have, I mean, is that these guys, meaning the researchers, the presenters don't know what they know. And when I say that, I'm saying that from a purely clinical standpoint in that, you know, I, I asked a lot of questions of things that, you know, for me were like, well, did you even look at the foot? Did you do a clinical exam? Anything at all? You know, even as much as I hate the foot posture index, if they had at least done the foot posture index, we would know some things about the structure of that foot, but they're diving straight into kinematics and trying to figure these things out. And they're raising more questions amongst themselves without having any idea at all of what the foot, well, what the segmental stiffness in the foot is even capable of even from a foot posture index aspect, you know, and I don't like that because I think there's things that they're missing. Sure. Um, but here's, yeah. here's, a, here's another question for you, Bruce. This, I mean, you remember this paper here that they um, used, you know, a pretty typical plastic shell heel post, but then they added full length lateral wedging on it and did EMG work. And they expected to see an increase in perineus longus activity, but they didn't. Would have you have expected that to happen? Well, it depends. No. I mean, the thing is, in those who have, have spastic cavus, you know, which is kind of what I would think that they were going after, although they're researchers, not necessarily clinicians. They may even not even know what spastic cavus is unless they came up with that in their re- research and I didn't look at their references. But with a spastic cavus, it's overreacting. So you would want to see a decrease in the EMG signal or you would want to see a stoppage. And that's, the, that's you know, now you can get an, an inactivity in the perineus longus in these patients when you use a lateral forefoot wedge or, and, or a, a, a lateral heel wedge. But you know, if, if it's, if it's the activity was generally increased and that was the issue, it will decrease, but that's not going to increase it. Now, if you've done it in your um, pronated patients, cause I know there's at least one, if not two papers that had done the same thing and they saw an increase in uh, not necessarily an increase in the activity, but I, an increase in the strength of the output in the activity of the perineals when they used a lateral forefoot wedge, but that was in pronated patients as opposed to the cavus patients. I don't know if that, if you agree with that. Kate. You know, I do. So um, actually this, this one was interesting here too. I don't know whether you caught this one. They um, did some manual therapy on the ankle joint. Yay. Looked at walking speed 
and pretty much showed that after the manipulation, you walk faster. But then, which I thought was interesting, they speculated that that ankle mobilization, walking faster, could help reduce the incidence of falls in older people, which is a bit of a bit of a stretch, but it's not. I wouldn't say it's un, not unrealistic, but it was a yeah, kind of an interesting little finding. Uh, yeah, I agree. You know, it's just it's still depends on exactly who the, how old they were and what their risks for falls were and things like that. Yeah. I think the thing I'd say about that is, although that's not an unreasonable, an unreasonable point to, to suggest, I mean, look at the title of the research. That is not what the research investigated. Um, no, no, ex- exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know, like at what point do you, do you, do you say to people, you just need to conclude what you've studied. That really is a, is a, that's a yeah, bit of a big shout, isn't it? I mean, I'm no, I'm no expert in, in the elderly or in falls, but I'd love to know, I'd love for you to run that past uh, Hilton, uh, Latrobe, actually, Craig, and see what, see what his thoughts were on that. Yeah, that's true. Now, here, here was yeah. this really, I thought this was, this was actually a really, really interesting one. They used ultrasound over the sort of medial anterior calcarea to measure blood flow through the lateral plantar artery, Okay. Then they adducted the hallux and measured the blood flow again, and blood flow decreased 42%. Now that, that's almost a, 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 a halving of the blood flow through that artery when the hallux was abducted. Um, is that a mean? Is that is that a mean? A mean, was a mean of, of the subjects. Now it was non-weight bearing. So, so, but that, you know, that, that's what the study does, and they showed that. I, I had no problem with it, but I was actually chairing the session, so I asked her a question, and, you know, like, imagine doing that weight-bearing, and then even better, imagine doing that with different photothetic designs. Like, does a medial sky affect blood flow through that artery? You know, and, and then the next speculation is, is, is that related to healing of plantar fasciopathy or something like that? So... Yeah, the study found what it found, but some really interesting um, speculation from that. But again, it was it was non weight bearing. It was just, um, and I think you commented to me, Bruce, that that that, that abduction of the hallux obviously perhaps compresses the artery through the muscle belly. Um, that could also be compressing the nerve and causing symptoms. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, I mean, I've heard so many times. Uh, uh, UK podiatrists, uh, the guy, all the guys in in uh, uh, Qatar, Qatar, however you want to say that, you know, they talk about dry needling of those areas when it they think it's primarily the you know the abductor muscle, and I'm like, okay, I mean, you know, I, I can see uh, it, but it would be along the same lines. If it's if it's a Baxter's nerve issue, it's that's right where the artery runs, so why not? So you know. I like that research, though. I mean, when you think about it, we we constantly consider the compressive tensile forces uh, in the context of articulations or, or tendons when we're when we're putting orthoses in in shoe. But we very rarely think of those same forces applied to vascular structures. I think that's I think that's a lovely direction. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So let, let me just a couple other little studies here, that, little snippets. This was one about using. Obviously, we use we, we use photothotics a lot. Um, these researchers decided to call them medial arch supports. Looking at the picture of what they actually use, I don't know if anyone who uses them that way clinically, so that was the issue. And this is the not the, not the second study to reach the same conclusion that 
footwear with arch supports. So they haven't got the decency to call them foot orthotics. I mean, look at the last author. Should be used with... I've just seen the last author, yeah. yeah. <laughs> should, yeah these findings suggest that, let's just say, foot orthotics should be used with some caution as they may increase the knee adduction moments that potentially contribute to knee OA. So it's kind of, it's the second such finding. I mean, I have a whole video in the Clinical Biomechanics Bootcamp that's online addressing this issue of foot orthosis perhaps causing knee OA. So here's another study. But, you know, the biggest risk factor for knee OA is obesity. So if they're not obese, well, they don't, who cares if you increase that knee abduction moment by a small amount. So, um, yeah, look, I think, I think they were the main studies. Oh, hang on. Let me just put the screen back up. I think Bruce and I had a little bit of a, um, this one, you know, metatarsal loading and runners. Um, surprise, surprise. Your metatarsal load is greater when you're forefoot striking. <laughs> you know, like at least, at least we've got data backing it up now, but I think that was sort of, um, Oh, and this, this, yeah, getting this one, you know, midfoot changes. They, they put the runners into three groups. One group did a foot strengthening exercises. What, oh, they, they were runners, so foot strengthening, kept running. The second group kept running, but um, walking in minimalist shoes. And the third group was the control group. Then they looked at the kin kin kinematics, followed them for eight weeks. And what was interesting that the arch deformation decreased. Oh, I said I said both groups there, but it was actually in all three groups. So how much the arch deformed decreased in all three groups, including the control group, but it was only statistically significant in the strengthening group. So the group with the strengthening got a statistically significant improvement in how much their arch collapsed, so it collapsed less. But then they speculated this could help with patients who have overuse injuries associated with drops arches, dropped arches. And as I say there, I don't see how. You know, like if an injury is due to a load in a tissue, how's making the arch drop less going to fix that unless that's the cause of the load? So, again, yeah. jumping to a conclusion that probably wasn't quite warranted. be interesting to see that one because I think statistical significance always sounds good, but then we, we, we know that that doesn't necessarily marry with um, clinical significance, right? So, um, oh, I'd like I'd, to see... I'd, I look forward to seeing the full paper on that one. Yeah, I'd like you're going to... Yeah, I don't think it'll ever become a full paper. It's, I think just the way they presented it. I mean, her numbers for, for that, the, the strengthening group were significantly different in what it started with and what it ended with. Yeah, but there were baseline differences. Yes. Um, but, and they were very off uh, compared yeah. to the other two groups. And I'm like, yeah. okay, that right there is a problem. No, so I think th this will be one where we really want to see the full publication to try and look at that issue. Um, actually just this, this, I wasn't going to do any more, but I might just do this one here. This was, this one, the association between concussion and ankle sprain history. Because I, I've, I actually have a bit of an interest in concussion. Because um, I had to de deal with a few boys who had it in rugby. But this study showed that if you'd had a concussion, you were 2.5 times more likely to have also had an ankle sprain. And this is a great finding, everything. But I think this, I'm aware of at least 20, if not more studies, that have shown an increased risk for lower extremity injury following a concussion. Now, at what time, at what stage is any more research useless? Like, do we need another study to tell us that lower extremity, there's a greater risk of lower, you know, like, it, and it's, and it, I know that there are neuromotor changes in the lower limb up to a, at least, if followed up for at least a year in some of these studies. 
that are, that are deficient in following a concussion. Um, so it's a, obviously a serious problem, but I, I just, I, I, while I was pleased to see this at the same time, it, it's, we've now got 21 studies rather than 20 studies showing the same thing, that there is this increased risk. Um, so, so again, it's, it's one thing, just keep on doing research again and again, but you know, what are we going to do about the problem? So, uh, there was one, there was one other paper you posted, Craig, which uh, I'd love your thoughts on. And it hmm. was, um, I only, only ask it because I was one of the subjects in, 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 collected uh, as part of the data and that was that was joe reeves who's chris one of chris nester's phd students from oh, the Salf, salford it was the indwelling uh emg in tip post on the different types of orthoses the wedging mm -hmm. and the arch do you remember do you remember posting i'm it? just trying to i'm just scrolling up to find it um do you do you, do you remember the video i posted on my sports podiatry yeah i do yeah yep. Of, of, of me being an absolute wuss and having uh, you know uh, this this needle put into my tip post it was uh, <laughs> i'm not going to try and be an alpha male about it it, it was it was really freaky uh, but that was that paper so it was yeah that was really, cool, yeah. really really lovely girl and a great yeah great yeah, research no, that, so, I mean, that, that, that was a good study and they used five different conditions but i the, the comment i made on this study was that it was probably one of the first to start using different design features in photothesis so it wasn't using a foot orthoses that was using a foot orthoses with a higher arch height and then a go. foot orthoses with medial wedging and then a foot orthoses with a higher arch height and medial wedging and that's to me that's part of that problem I talked about at the beginning about the disconnect between researchers and clinical practice and this is a great step in the way towards solving that problem about you know foot orthotics are not foot orthotics you know you've got mid-foot arch devices Medley wedge devices, so that that was good, but whether they've gone far enough, you know, I, I don't know. So yeah, it's a um, digital. And they, those, I tell you as well, those devices felt um, dramatically different to each other in, in shoe to me. Um, so yeah, I, I was I was interested to see. I, I see your comment that they found uh, lots of variation. So subject specific responses. Yeah, a lot, a lot uh, of subject specific responses. So. Yeah, which kind of kind of. But I think you and I know those who might need a midfoot supporting device versus those that don't. And that, that clinical practice that we're familiar with might go some way to explaining that variability. And that's that part of that disconnect. So it, I think it comes back to what you, that post that we're probably all aware of on Podiatry Arena years ago now. We talked about this sort of consensus, didn't it, for um, ortho, ortho I, I think, what did you term it? Some orthosis prescription consensus or, or we, oh, yeah. we, we, never got never got anywhere because you know <laughs> yeah. you know that you know that uh that really good paper that, that christian barton was and and and, and the team around him uh, published which which combined level one evidence with expert clinical reasoning yeah, sure, of, yeah, um, yeah. on uh i think it was on patellofemoral pain wasn't it um mm -hmm. what, what we need is, a, is, is an orthosis paper a bit like that don't you think not that we have oh, lots we, of yeah, one we, evidence we sure but, um, do so yeah that would be great. Did you talk about Aaron's paper, Aaron Ward's paper? No, I didn't. Um, I, I actually missed his presentation. Was oh, wonderful. no, that was that was very good. I mean, he put in a minimal um, sensor for stiffness of the spring ligament. Now, it was into a cadaver, obviously, and then he did one of his uh, yeah. walking, walking deads uh, where he had that foot walk, but what they noted was the, you know, the if you stopped the, or stopped, so what he did is he had it he had that cadaver leg walk with the posterior tib functioning and without the posterior tib functioning. And what he was looking for is load in, um, uh, in the spring ligament. 
and it was significantly increased in the sprinkling event when the posterior tip shut yeah. down. Yeah, which, of course, we expected, but he said as far as he could see in the literature, that's only been done once before and not to the level that he did it. So, yeah, for, the, for those of you who are not familiar with Aaron Ward's work, Aaron is um, his lab, the sign on the door says Walking Dead. He uses cadaver limbs and recreates them in a walking environment and does all sorts of weird things to them. Um, actually, for those of you who joined us late, if you're wondering what's going on, Bruce and I have just been at the IFAB conference, so we're talking about that. I'm in a phone booth in the lounge at JFK. Bruce is back at his practice, so the, the conference ended yesterday. But the last session of the conference... Um, Which I missed. <laughs> brings us in nicely to a, a new study that came out as well. But the, the, when I first got the program, the conference, I just noticed that the, the last session was on minimalist running shoes. And I thought, why? Like it was, um, minimalist running shoes make up 0.3% of the market. I mean, everyone's lost interest in it. Why devote a whole conference session to it? Unfortunately, the whole conference session was almost like a commercial promo cheerleading for uh, minimalist running and minimalist footwear with no criticism, no reasons why you shouldn't do it the, the other side of the fence. So it was a um, Who chaired that session, by the way? Sorry? Who chaired Davis. that session? <laughs> um, no, Irene Davis did chair it. Irene is, will be coming on to do one of these podchat lives with us um, sometime soon. She's agreed to come and do one, so we'll look forward to that. But let me share my screen because the, the reason I sort of mentioned it was it. Craig just used IFAB to, to tee up a load of uh, new episodes. Yeah, I've for actually, us. I've actually, I've actually <laughs> that was, that's um, probably w well worth the, uh, the uh, <laughs> tuition to go for that. Yeah, but while the conference was on, this study came out, which I, I, it caused a source of amusement for me and quite a few other people. A number of people shared it on Facebook. But this was a study that just took a group of runners in what they call traditional running shoes and then randomized half of them to minimalist shoes and half of them to maximalist shoes. And then they measured the 3D kinematics and kinetics and followed them for uh, nine, nine weeks. Well, I can't remember. They followed them. And then they measured the kinematics and kinetics again. And what they showed was that the, the changes induced initially were there four weeks later. So the, the idea being, if you're going to do research on maximal shoes or minimal shoes, doing them on day one, you'll get the same result as if you give them four weeks to get used to them. So that was really what the study was about. But half of those in the minimalist group got an injury <laughs> and none got an injury in the maximalist group. And like that wasn't their primary finding. So it was, a, it was a secondary finding. And you could argue that they didn't take time to transition or adapt properly. But the sheer fact that half of them got injuries is, is um, I think, says a lot. So what it, what it means is if you're going to transition to minimalist running, you do need quite a period of adaptation. If you're going to transition to maximalist running shoes, you probably don't need to worry about transitioning. It, that seems to happen quite quickly. But the other important thing this study brought up for me is ethics in that it's going to be harder and harder to do minimalist research because of the risk of injury to participants. You know, if half the participants in the study got an injury, that's, you know, I know the, you know, it's not obviously not a life-threatening thing, but harm to participants is something that ethics institutional review boards in North America look really closely at. So that this, so it was interesting that this came out during the conference. Of course, during the last session, this study never got a mention. <laughs> so it was kind of interesting. I think, 
I also think as well that you know when after after 2010 when when this all gathered momentum again not for the first time these things go in cycles as we know we know that then there was a, 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 a massive amount of research done purely because it was it was well funded because it was so popular and and we know now that it's less popular we know as you know as you say Craig 0.3 percent you know uh Sales. issues so with lagging popularity there has to become at some point a lagging in funding yeah. Um, so if nothing else, I'd expect it to dry up, if not from ethical reasons, ethical approval reasons, but yeah. surely the funding's got to get pulled. Yeah, well, the, the... And then they'll claim a big conspiracy. Then they'll claim a conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> they always do. Well, well that's the point. I mean, because if you, you imagine, remember, I mean, we all know the, the rhetoric and the propaganda when minimalism started, that it was going to put Nike out of business and all these startup companies you know, started producing these shoes. Well, most of them don't exist anymore. So that that's a source of funding. I mean, the, the, the market's just not big enough to generate money to fund the research that, that they would like. So, mm-hmm. well, um, um, how, hey, how about um, you told me you were walking past Macy's and you saw a... Oh, well, yeah, that, that, was, that was the... Um, I'm going to have to share my desktop. Now, just one block from the conference venue. Oh, oh hang on. Oh, I've got. You just got to give me a moment to. Sorry, I, give me a moment to. Uh, For those who don't know what Macy's is, Bruce, just in case there may be people that there may be people that don't watch films or, or have never been to the US. Just describe what. How would you describe Macy's to someone from who'd never been to the US? And never well, TV? it's the, you know, it's the, it's just a. a a retail store that uh, a shop, a shop, sells right. everything. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I don't know what the equivalent would be in uh, in the UK. Barney, uh, I don't know. It'll be, would... In Australia, it'll be a Myers. Okay, um, it's a little bit more upmarket than a Target, Coles, Kmart. But anyway, Nick, Nick, just one block from the conference venue was Macy's, and just inside the front door were these kiosks for um, scanning your foot, and they three D print your orthotics. Risa. Risa. Yeah, which are are a rapidly growing company. I caught a press release a few months ago in which they were recruiting 150 interns to be paid $10 an hour to be trained, I presume to be these people standing here selling them. So so this, you can see the 3D printer in the background. You can see they had two staff there when I when I called in. So I, I just thought it was interesting that, that this Risa seemed to have quite an unlimited resource to really start expanding rapidly. Um, and I know. I just, I just look at that poor girl there. You see, on that photo, she's there like this, hand on head. You, you can just tell that she's delighted. There's a massive community of proper biomechanists one block away. She's I walked past a couple of times and I saw people looking sideways at them, and I could tell they were from the conference. So they yeah. were. But, but the, I only just went in on the way just to fill in some time before the airport this morning to take that photo. But what was worse was. Everyone was stopping by to ask her for directions about where things were in Macy's. <laughs> so sure. They were. She's right inside the front door. Yeah, so they weren't exactly doing any business. So, <laughs> well, they're going to also be touring several, co- uh, lots of Costco's and throughout the U.S. as well, and, yeah. uh, which is kind of like a big Sam's Club or you know, more people, I guess, know yeah. Costco. But uh, and then, yeah, that's. I we'll we'll see how they they got a massive influx of cash within the last six months. From an, uh, I believe it was a Chinese 
investor. Yeah. So they've got some, they've got some extra money to go with what yeah, they're doing. No, I think I, I mean, I, I thought it was timely to share it because we, there's just going to be so much more. And more oh, it's so, going to explode. Yeah. So anyway, well, we've been going for 50 minutes, didn't we? For those of you who've just joined, I'm at JFK um, in a phone booth. <laughs> Bruce, Bruce and I have been at, a, at the IFAB conference for the last three days in New York. So we've just been commenting, um, discussing the questions and uh, some of the issues that came up. So, um, I, I think unless you've got anything pressing, pressing in, I think 50 minutes, I, I'm, I'm on running on battery on my computer and yeah, no, I, I think, um, we'll, like we'll, I'll, we'll try and gather some feedback. Um, the, the viewing numbers and the comments have been low. We expected this. Uh, so yeah. We're trying something, we're trying something different, something new. We'll try and gather some feedback if people found it interesting. And if so, we'll do it from, you know, when one of, yeah. one of us is at a conference again, and if not, then lesson learned. Um, yeah, yeah that, that's, that's all part, part of the fun. Yeah, so th- thanks, Bruce, for joining oh, yeah. in. <laughs> and we'll, Good to see you again, uh, Bruce. Yeah, too. Thanks for having me, guys.